Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, Dr. Ross Green here. I usually say coming to you live from the offices of Live in the Balance in Portland, Maine, but I can't say that today. I'm at the Live in the Balance School Mental Health Conference today in Vancouver, British Columbia, where about 300 people are um, getting themselves immersed in a whole bunch of different speakers over the course of the next three days. This is the final stop in quite a stretch of um, Lives in the Balance sponsored programs. Um, Let's see, the uh, Alberta school-based mental health conference was uh, last week in uh, Edmonton, Alberta. And um, then the first annual Lives in the Balance conference on European conference on non-punitive non-adversarial interventions for at-risk kids was uh, last week in Sweden. The Lives in the Balance annual summit was last week in Portland, Maine. And uh, now we've got three days here in Vancouver. Lots of people learning about collaborative and proactive solutions and um, non-punitive non-adversarial interventions for at-risk kids. Uh, we may only have one of our principal friends on with us today. Uh, Tom, is that you? Hi, Ross. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I am uh, doing well. I'm in my fourth time zone in three weeks. And, um, you know, when you do that, you enter a different sphere, uh, just a different uh, universe of living where time no longer matters. Um, but I will be back in the good old Eastern time zone again by first thing Friday morning on the red eye and uh, then can start uh, living life according to the Eastern time zone again. Tom, you were one of our presenters at the annual Lives in the Balance Summit in Portland, Maine on Friday. Um, you had large groups of people. I uh, know on good authority that there was great enthusiasm about the presentations that you and uh, Kim Doheny did for uh, educators. Um, any takeaway from um, your experiences at the summit? Well, I, I think that the, the, the biggest takeaway was that there's a lot of tremendous enthusiasm and um, excitement about the um, the hope that this process brings to public schools and mental health organizations that folks really uh, recognize that uh, bringing the the students' concerns to the table and building a relationship is just as important as getting the problem solved. And uh, I, I was really excited because we were working with some po- folks who had already had some some uh, some of the essential learnings of the model. And so they were asking some pretty complex questions, and, and it was just great to hear um, that folks are working through the process of supporting kids in, in schools 
um, using this model. And it, it, the, the best part was just the, the overall excitement of everyone being together and, and feeling that energy of everyone focusing on this. It was a um, there was a really nice vibe to the day. I will say that mm -hmm. I was astonished that you know this is the first summit at which we've had any presentation of the research on collaborative and proactive solutions that is accumulating. We had five speakers present on research uh, from Oakland, California, and from the five-year NIMH-funded Virginia Tech study, and from Denmark and Sweden. Um, and I was amazed that, um, well, they were very good speakers, but um, boy, people really, and from Australia, people really seemed to um, enjoy listening to research, which is not something that can be said about most groups because a lot of people think research is kind of dry. But, um, you know, uh, what I asked each of the presenters to do was tell us what they wouldn't do again, what was hard, how they would do things differently. And I think people got a lot out of those what um, do you remember any of the questions? We have a bunch of email, by the way, so um, we're not stalling for time here. But do you remember any of the questions that came up in your breakout groups at the summit that you think our listeners might be interested in hearing and, and in hearing your answers to? Um, I think that the the core themes are pretty pretty common themes that you and I have discussed for the last seven or eight years. You know, a lot of folks want to know about. Um, the practical steps, what, when, I kind of, the way I reflected it back to folks is uh, I gave folks a chance to turn and talk in the, during the session and so that they could kind of share what they were thinking at a given moment based on what they had learned. And, and I asked them to uh, write down two things that they would go back to the, their school and actually do right away and then three or four other things that they'd like to get to soon thereafter. And a lot of them, as I walked around the room, what I heard them saying a lot about was uh, it could be summarized in the who, what, where, how, and why categories. So who would be doing this work? How would they do it? What steps could they offer to ensure uh, that the, the work was being done uh, effectively? And, and uh, uh, what kind of training would they need? Re and really the how of the, the scheduling. So, you know, certainly poor high school folks with the way their schedules work, it's really tricky for them to collaborate to get time to talk with kids unless they, they volunteer lunchtime or after school time, which many of them are very willing to do. And, and that's just something that, that was evident in the conference was that people were there to, to do whatever they needed to do to help kids to be successful uh, within reason, of course. And then, uh, um, so the, the key themes were, you know, when do, we, when do we get together to do this and who needs to be at the table? So we talked about the student assistance teams, and, uh, which could be called an RTI team or a, a Tier 2 team. Uh, um, and basically we talked about who should be at the table and, and, and what they should be doing. And, you know, Ross, I think the biggest thing that we, we talked about was that the, the best person to be having the Plan B conversation is the person who's trying to really build a relationship with the kid. So, it, of course, guidance counselors, social workers, and folks in the in the uh, main office have have uh, uh, an office where they can sit with the child quietly. But but a lot of ideas were spoken about, uh, saying you know, if if a staff member needs to have a conversation with the student, then then if the administration and the leadership of the organization really supports that, then they'll ar arrange a time for them to meet. You know, whether that be coverage or 
or they meet during a study hall or whatever it takes to get excuse me, the adult listening to the students' concerns and expressing their concerns and, and supporting each other. Um, so we talked a lot about staffs building in that, that ground level support of people working together to support kids. And then the second thing that we really talked about is uh, um, what does it look like at the, the, the student assistance team level, including uh, incorporating the ALSUP into our uh, 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 meetings so that fo folks are, are focused on the solutions and, and what they're going to do to talk about problems instead of just kind of having a session where people spend an hour talking about things that they have no control over. So we talked about, you know, the idea of, of the core philosophy influencing the school, that kids do well if they can. And then secondly, we, we looked at uh, um, the, uh, the piece about if the team's meeting and we believe the kids do well if they can, you know, what, what are they looking like when they come through the doors and which problems are we going to choose to solve which then organically led to a conversation about transference and explicit instruction. So it was really all about high-level work that folks were doing to kind of infuse the model into their schools. You know, I've always said that getting good at the ALSUP is hard, but not that hard. Getting good at solving problems collaboratively with kids, plan B, is hard and takes some practice, but not that hard. As you're saying, the hardest part for schools is that um, CPS doesn't fit neatly into the existing school schedule. You know, if teachers are learning how to present a certain topic area in a certain new way, at least they have the topic area scheduled every day. And so all they're really doing is um, handling the dissemination of the information in a different way. But CPS requires um, that people really make a commitment to carving out the time to uh, solve problems collaboratively with kids. And it requires organizing things in a way that is not necessarily easily done and easily fit into the existing school schedule. And that's the commitment. Um, you know, you got to get good at the LSIP, you got to get a good at plan B. But if the organizational piece is not in place and it stays willy-nilly, then plan B doesn't really happen because it's too willy-nilly and it's too random. Um, and I find that for most schools, that's the hardest part. And it sounds like in your breakout groups at the summit, you were getting a fair number of questions about that. Um, how do we organize the effort? What do you think? Well, I think that the key really starts with the leadership. Um, the, the, the leadership is really important. Having said that, you know, there, there's no other, there's no more powerful change agent than a small, small group of uh, uh, people who are really committed to working on this and are putting their best effort forward and they're actually getting results with it. So I explained to one group of teachers um, that uh, if they work together and work on this work and they start to get results with some of the kids, the buzz is going to grow fast. So I explained to them that the, 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 what I call the photocopier level conversations or the uh, lunchroom conversations are far more powerful than a mandate. So, so I tried to make it clear to the folks there that 
when I say that the leadership is important, it's not important in the sense that the leadership mandates that people do CPS. What, what's important is that the leadership works together with staff to creatively solve problems to provide a context for CPS to grow and thrive in the school. And so that, that piece is important. Um, and I also think that, that having that core group of people, I mean, you know, and Ryan Gleason was there with me, and I said to Ryan, you know, feel free to speak up because Ryan's really good at this piece of the work. And, and he said, no, you know, I think that's pretty much it, is that getting that core group of people to uh, uh, speak together and work together and get them to talk together and build trust and try it is is super important. And and I also talked about, you know, that at this point, the Lives in the Balance website has incredible information and videos. So, you know, when you and I started working together, Ross, we didn't have those kinds of videos and things. That really moves the staff forward fast to see things being done and how they're done. And uh, and so I certainly encourage people to use, you know, the the website for the professional development component, because really in order to to implement anything new in a school, you have to have a few core things in place. You have to have um, buy-in from enough of the staff so that people will really try it. You have to have training, and you have to have a cycle of continuous improvement. People need to try it, assess how it went, reflect on what happened, and then try again. And they need to feel safe to do that. So in other words, that culture of collegiality not really just getting along as friends, but actually saying, hey, I think this might lift your practice. It really makes a big difference. So so I think that it boils down to a combination of leadership and uh, and teamwork from the whole school to, to really say, you know, we're going to, the way we're doing things isn't working. We're going to do something different and we're going to give it a, a real shot and, and really go through the whole process of trying and trying again and not giving up. Along those lines, we have an email here. We have many, many that are in the queue, mostly because we missed last week's program due to my travel schedule. Um, But here we go. uh, This is is from an educator saying, I've done work over the past few years implementing the ALSA problem-solving plan and uh, plan B to tier two and three behavior support. I'm really curious as to what this would look like as a tier one approach. And of course, when he's talking about tiers, he's probably talking about either response to intervention or more likely PBIS, positive behavioral interventions and supports. I'll continue with the email. These two questions in particular from the school discipline survey resonate. And here he's referring to the school discipline survey on the Lives in the Balance website where we are asking questions so as to get a feeling for whether the school is relying primarily on punitive incentive-based interventions to help at-risk kids or um, whether they are um, being collaborative instead. So here's this uh, educator saying uh, these two questions resonate with him. In responding to challenging behaviors, the school relies heavily on a rubric system, a list of behaviors students mustn't exhibit, and an algorithm for how Adults should respond to those behaviors if they are exhibited. That's on the school discipline survey. And our response to students' challenging behavior is primarily emergent and reactive rather than planned and proactive. So Mm. this educator is asking, um, how do we do this at a Tier 1 level? 
And um, as somebody who I know has had experience with PBIS in schools and CPS, I'm betting you are uniquely qualified to answer that question. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I think that so. You know, Ross, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because what I explain to people is that from my perspective, tier, you know, CPS done on Tier 1, which is a reference to the, the RTI process. So I'll start there because it kind of links to the other piece. Um, tier 1 to me is what I call mini, mini plan Bs. So you might have a student who's working on the skill of being able to work effectively with a partner in reading. And so you might say to them, hey, I noticed when you're sitting with your partner that, that you seem to get distracted sometimes or, or it kind of seems like it's not going the way you'd like it to. What's up with that? And, and letting the kid kind of talk about their concerns and perspective about what's going on with the partner, which, by the way, Kim, Kim gave a great – I can't remember all the details, but she gave a great talk as part of our conversation about shelving your preconceptions as to why this is not going well. So basically saying, you know, we, we – we might have an idea as to what's happening, but you want to put that away and be open to whatever the kid's perspective is because you never know. And so those little mini plan B conversations to me for tier one are happening when the school starts to understand the basics of the model. Um, those could be happening all the time based on the needs of specific students and can improve culture and classroom management because kids are having a voice in what's going on and they're feeling listened to and they're having a, a, a voice in the 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 um, you know the decisions that are made. So so I think that would be tier one. And to me, tier two is when you're you've done that kind of problem solving, and it's not going so great still. And you're kind of feeling like, okay, I'm really not getting anywhere with this. So you start to actually fill out the ALSUP and, and start doing you know getting support from a colleague or the guidance counselor about what to do to help a child. And then for me, tier three is when you do a full full blown student assistance team referral, which would include the ALSUP and any other district paperwork that is required because the, the behaviors are just not um, coming together over the long term. So having said all of that, you know, I, I think that, that, that the, the rubric component of this is really complicated. And I'll tell you why it's really complicated. A lot of the times it's driven by a policy or law. And so I think that the key schools that are running up against a rubric situation is that they have to really take it back to a, a committee level of saying, you know, what, what do we really believe in about kids and their behaviors? And, and to me, if a rubric is still in play, the school's culture hasn't really adopted the philosophy of kids do well if they can. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that schools can't have... Um, you have to have order. There has to be, you know, expect behavior expectations. And just like you talk about, Ross, in your talks, you know, you have the expectations, and then when a child's ability to meet those expectations, when the out expectations outstrip the child's skills, then that's when you get the cross and you get the – I always kind of imagine it like family feud, you know, when the X comes up. Uh, sorry, that was supposed to be a joke. Um, but, the, you know, the, the, the X comes up one. and the – <laughs> and the kid, well, you know, and then the kids kind of, I forgot there's no one else on the program today. So, so the kids come up and, and, and get stuck, you know, and they got to talk to the principal, right? So, so my point is, what do we do to, to, to kind of, uh, the point about behavior that I think is most important is to remember that it's so predictable. You know, um, I think most of us see it in our spouses, 
So, like, my, my wife can predict how I'm going to respond to certain things with almost probably 100% accuracy, right? If she does X, I'm going to do Y. And I think with kids, we know if, if, if we put this expectation in place, the kid's going to do Y. So if we know that, we should probably do something about it before we get there. And I think that the, the point in the email about the rubrics being reactionary instead of proactive is the heart of the matter with this issue. If we're, if we're meet, sitting down with kids and saying, hey, look, you know, I know your fourth period class pushes your buttons and it's not going well. What's up with that? That's a different conversation than saying, hey, you know, you went to fourth period again, insert in quotation, you know, in parentheses, you know, uh, what's wrong with you, tone, you know, and then, and then go down the whole path of, of kind of berating the kid for doing what you knew they were going to do in the first place during the fourth period class. We're probably not really, like, taking the philosophy to heart. That was a complicated question. Did I answer the different components, Ross? I feel like I missed one. I think you did. Um, I mean, I have a slightly different take. Oh, um, I'd love to hear it. Well, number one, I'm not a big tier guy. And I understand that there are people who have found the tiers to be very useful for organizing who's going to get what. But since I think that CPS cuts across all three tiers, the big question is whether if you're doing CPS at all three tiers, do you really need the tiers? Um, and if you're doing, if you're solving problems collaboratively and learning about kids at the level of lagging skills and unsolved problems, at tier one, do you really have anybody left at tiers two and three? So that's, that's one point. Point number two is that rubric systems are focused on behavior. And CPS is focused on the problems that are causing those behaviors and solving them. So, so long as all we're focused on is if you do this behavior, here's what's going to happen to you. Um, I think we are in a completely different universe as it relates to being able to help kids because as you know, in the CPS model, all behavior is, is the signal, the fever, the way the kid is communicating to us. I'm stuck. There are expectations. I'm having difficulty meeting, which means that the really important piece of information is what are the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting, not what behaviors is the kid exhibiting to communicate to us that he's having difficulty meeting them. And rubric systems are focused completely on what I call the byproduct, um, the way the kid is communicating, not the expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting in the first place. And so right. I view that way of going about doing things as, quite frankly, completely misguided and focused on completely the wrong thing. Um, and if you're doing CPS at all three tiers, what do you need tiers for? Everybody's getting CPS. So I guess the big question for me is, if a school is implementing CPS at tier one, which means what's everybody getting, then what everybody is getting is if they're having difficulty meeting an expectation, we are going to figure out why and we're going to help them. And we're going to be really curious about what's getting in their way. 
and we're going to solve those problems with them collaboratively across the board, every kid. We are going to rely zero on punitive uh, actions that are common still to disciplinary programs in schools, detention, suspension, discipline referrals, holding the kid in from recess, because we know that those interventions don't solve the problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing us to apply those interventions. At a very basic level, I think those are the key components. And when we have a kid who's struggling, the key piece of paperwork is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Now, here's the good news. There's other paperwork, of course, that exists in schools. There are IEPs, there are 504 plans, there are functional behavior assessments, and there are behavior plans. We are truly at the precipice of, making, of, of posting on the Lives in a Balance website CPS-flavored IEPs, 504 plans, behavior plans, and FBAs. Though we are truly putting the finishing touches on them now so that the ALSIP is not the only CPS-flavored thing going on in the building. All the paperwork is CPS-flavored and has us focusing on problems and solving them rather than on behaviors and modifying them. To me, that's the genesis of what CPS looks like at Tier 1. But I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on my thoughts. Oh, I, I, I would agree with you that, that um, I think what we're talking about is, is uh, you know, I wanted to answer the, the gentleman's email about um, – what what is tier one like? I was thinking more of the how do I say it the intensity or the amount of time. I was thinking of the tiers as being related to district required paperwork, which is required by federal law because RTI is something that we have to do. So in other words, if we have to do RTI in a public school, then this is kind of how it would look to me as I was working through the process. But I couldn't agree with you more that. If, if we are truly building relationships with kids and doing these things, it, it really does cut back so dramatically on discipline. Uh, uh, it, uh, it, it's just incredible. I mean, in, in my career, I have suspended one kid one time. Um, and granted, I was at a K-2 school and a 1-3 school, so I understand that the, the board-level policies, procedures, and things that, that kind of come down at the high school level can be more intense. I really worked hard to always work with the kid and their family and the staff to not have to actually go to suspension for any reason. So, so I think that it's really important to note that, that, uh, um, that the, the RTI process, if, if you're going to take something, you know, through a process, I was looking at it more in terms of the, uh, amount of time spent working with the child as it increases looking at it lining up through the tiers than actually using a different process. Does that make sense? It does. That kids, kids, kids in the classroom, I, again, remember at the beginning, for Tier 1, all kids should be receiving CPS at any time that they need it to solve a problem. Anytime, whatever it is. If it's partners in reading, if it's... There's such a huge difference between a teacher saying to a kid, okay, you guys aren't following the rules for partners for reading. They're up on the chart. Read them to me. You're going to stay in at recess and practice this. It's so different than saying to two kids, hey, guys, I kind of noticed that partners aren't going so great here. What's up with that? 
or even softer, hey, guys, what are good partners doing together in the room? Let's look around and talk together. I mean, I've seen, I've seen teachers who are just fantastic about never, ever belittling or berating a kid even because, you know, you can put that kind of stuff in a, in a nice tone, but the kid knows exactly what the adult means when it's plan A. With plan A, it doesn't matter how you say it. With plan B, it matters the world what you say and how you say it. And so I think that, that it's the tone and it's the, the voicing of it that to me should be tier one because the definition of tier one is that everyone gets it. I think the definition in my mind of tier two is that it, tier one has been applied with, with a great deal of structure and skill and the student just needs a little more. And you start kind of keeping a paper trail in case that doesn't work. But I think that the, the real question that begs to be asked here, and it's a huge philosophical issue, is why does a kid have to go through a number of steps before getting help? And I would agree yeah. with you 100% that I don't want any kid to wait even a minute to get help. And it has bothered me for years that public schools at times have had processes that require kids to wait to get help. And so I've worked really hard to break down the walls. A good example of one of the ways that we can break down those walls is by having schools go uh, use a process called whole school Title I, which means that at any time in the reading process, if a child needs help, they immediately get it without no special referral processes, no 20% only getting help. Anyone who needs it, and any kid at any time is the rule with whole school Title I. So, so our, one of our elementary schools is seriously considering going to that model. So, so I think that there are, even within the federal rules, uh, how do I say it, processes by which we can get to the goals that we think are valuable um, when we think that kids do well if they can. It just comes back, to me, it just comes back to the core philosophy. If you believe that kids do well if they can, then you're, you're gonna, you just got to commit to finding the solutions to get that to happen. And the only thing I would add to that is that I think that in schools in particular, but really everywhere, kids do all if they can is a philosophy. If they don't have the systems in place that are an expression of kids do all if they can, then kids do all if they can remains a philosophy, but they don't exactly. have anything in place to support it. And that's where the organizational piece comes in. There's got to be systematic stuff in place for what happens when a kid is having difficulty meeting an expectation. So certainly when a school is implementing CPS, what they have in place is guided by the kids do all if they can mentality. But the systems that are in place are rather than going punitive on the kid, rather than sending him to the office, um, keeping him in from recess, sending him out in the hall. We are instead proactively trying to find out what's making it difficult for the kid to meet expectation. And um, when that is systematically happening in a school, well, that's when schools are implementing CPS, that is what's systematically happening. And that's why CPS is so frequently associated with dramatic reductions in discipline referrals and detentions and suspensions because, number one, people become crystal clear that those interventions don't solve any problems. And number two, they got something else that they're doing that is an expression of the kids do all if they can mentality, and it is embedded into the way business is done in the building. What are we going and to I say? think that most teachers agree with that. 
So it's not a hard sell. I think the the right. the thing that I wanted to say, Ross, is that not only do you have a, ultimately, we need little kids to learn, right? And because in their world, when they leave school, um, probably the most passionate thing for me is that I'm concerned for the health of our country and our way of life. And for kids are going to have to be able to read to learn independently, not just read to understand. Kids are going to have to be able to write to express themselves because technology has made writing far more important than it was 20 years ago. And third, they're going to have to work in teams to solve very complex problems. I always like to joke with people, you know, problems that one Einstein used to be able to solve now take five Einsteins working together. And so teamwork, collaboration, independence, and skill, collaborative and proactive solutions literally models all of those things. Self-reflection, thought, problem-solving, working together. But the reality is, is that if there's a massive decrease in kids being suspended, expelled, or going to school and feeling miserable, which is just as bad as being expelled or worse, then, then we have a ginormous increase in reading and writing and, and learning because they're in class doing their work. So for me, you know, what I saw when I was working at my school is that we did a lot of things to do exactly what we've discussed in this conversation. We, we worked really hard to look at data and information to make decisions about what kids need. Conversely, we looked at behavioral data and information to make decisions about how to help kids before they had a problem. That All of that work, we moved to the school from having 75% of kids meet at grade level for reading proficiency by the end of, six, by the end of second grade. Uh, we had 92% uh, uh, my last year, or 89% read at grade level, 4 more percent read one, one level below, and only a very small percentage read more than one level below, but they were all making a year's growth or more in reading. And that's because we believed that we were going to help any kid as soon as they needed it, and we were going to do whatever we had to do to help, help that, whether it was behavioral or academic. Because I think that ultimately, like, you know, all, all of the behavioral stuff really feeds instruction. Relationships, nothing motivates a kid more. I, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll say it best. This is, like the, you, you, this is like a confession, right? So I got plan A with my son the other day. I just got frustrated. I'm a, not, a normal parent. And I think it's important to hear that those of us even who are very committed to this work can get frustrated, especially when you live in a house with a kid who knows exactly how to push your buttons and, and probably acts a lot like you do, right? You know, I mean, they, my son can get going. He's intense. And uh, I, I got upset with him and he looked at me and he said, Dad, you know, I'm trying really hard on this thing at school, but when you get upset with me, I don't want to do anything. Right? And so I stopped and I said, I'm very, very sorry. I'm not handling this the way I need to be. Let me calm down for a little while and then we'll get together and we'll solve this together. Right? I'm frustrated. You're frustrated. It's going to be okay. And then I looked him right in the eye and I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you and I'm not going to let you down. And it all got better. I, I'm, I just thank God every day that I met you and I have the skills to do that, Ross. You had some skills That's before the pivotal you shift me. that moment. Um, you know, you said you were a little worried about the country. You probably liked my keynote at the summit um, oh, I loved it, but I can't eat ham now, so I, you know, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Most people you ruined the ham, Ross, that, but I'm but, good. Um, yeah. 
hey man, stick around me long enough. Uh, you won't any, you won't eat anything that breathes. But um, you know what I talked about in my keynote is that um, Hillary and Donald are sort of emblematic of a concerning trend, and that is um, people aren't really listening to each other's concerns anymore. They're just engaged in dueling solutions. We do it with kids. It's all about power. Um, It's not about collaboration. Um, And this election has brought out the worst side of human nature um, Mm. in a lot of people. And I'm focused on the better side of human nature and what it's going to take to get us there. And I'm especially focused on how we should go about disciplining and interacting with and parenting and teaching our kids so as to bring out the better side of human nature. Because this election, which thankfully is over tomorrow, has been quite an exercise in human beings at their absolute worst. And um, quite frankly, I'm not interested in seeing it anymore. We have the technology to fix it. If people are worried about the species, um, if people are worried about data telling us that college students are significantly less empathic and significantly more narcissistic than they were 10 or 15 years ago, then it's probably time for us to move away from interventions that involve power, make sure that the paperwork reflects lagging skills and unsolved problems and sets the stage for us to be solving problems with kids collaboratively rather than unilaterally so that we can get this thing back on track and really model for kids what empathy and the other skills on the better side of human nature are supposed to look like. Because I, think I, I couldn't we are agree more. Bearing the fruits. Yep. Go ahead. Sorry. Yep. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I thought you had. I, I just wanted to say, Ross, that I couldn't agree with you more. That the key to that whole thing, which is so critical, is teaching, modeling empathy. If people don't get anything out of this work and conversations, if they get one thing, which is to listen. To, to, to be present to others. I, I think that in this world of technology, you know, we, I, I've found that for me that this whole snowboarding kick that I'm on is way more about being out in the woods with my kid without technology than it is about snowboarding. Tom, it's no longer, it's no longer a kick. Now it's an addiction. <laughs> Thanks. So, okay, sure. Uh, well, yeah, my wife would agree. Um, but but I would say that being out in the woods, <laughs> being out in the woods with my son and solving problems together, is what that's all about, right? Because y- you just you have to solve the problems to get down the hill. And and we get into some hairy situations, including a real cliffhanger where we had to call ski patrol. But my point is, relationships only get built when you look each other in the eye. Do you know what I'm saying, Ross? I do. Tom, on that note, we're going to end the program a little early today because I've got to go do a breakout group here at the uh, British Columbia School Mental Health Conference here in Vancouver. All right. Thanks, as always, for doing the program, and I look forward to talking to you next month. All right, great, Ross. Have a great night. Bye. You too. And uh, to the rest of you, we'll be back again next uh, month, beginning of the month, first Monday of every month helping behaviorally challenging students talk to you then.